One day I was studying with a couple in their home and they asked me the question, did I have the gift of tongues? Well, I knew what they were thinking, but I asked them from the Bible perspective, what is the greatest gift, tongues or something else? They couldn't think of anything else that was greater than the gift of tongues. And I said, have you considered the gift of prophecy? Well, they had heard about the gift of prophecy, but frankly did not know much about it. So we're going to study this wonderful gift that is called the gift of prophecy. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we spend time studying your holy word, we pray that your spirit will enlighten us and lead us into thy light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many people who are not aware that in the scriptures there are many gifts, not just one gift. Uh, in fact, before Jesus ascended up to heaven, in the, the book of Ephesians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that with me. Ephesians chapter 4, and look at verse 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Here's what it says. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high... He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that ascended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Then it continues in verse 11 and 12, and here's what it says. When he ascended, it says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, if you notice the purpose of it, verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come, verse 13, into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God speaks about prophecy, and in the book of Amos, chapter 3 and verse 7, it says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Notice that when it comes to the human relationship, God uses prophets to reveal his secrets unto his people. So what is this and how does it work? And what are we to understand about it? The scripture speaks about prophets as a particular gift. Now, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a list of different spiritual gifts. And one of the gifts that is listed there, of course, is the spirit or the gift of prophecy. What's interesting about the, the different gifts is that the spirit of God has led Paul to compare them to different parts of the bodies. There's the, the eyes, the hands, the feet, uh, but when it comes to the gift of prophecy, he compares it to the gift of the eyesight. Now, in the Old Testament, this gift was not called the gift of prophecy. It was actually uh, referred to as people who could see in the future. They were called seers. Notice what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 9. Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come, let us go to the seer, for he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. So if you belong to a church, for example, and it doesn't have the gift of prophecy, then according to the scriptures, then is it able to see. So without the eyes, a person is blind. Consequently, without this gift, a church also can grope in darkness. 
The gift of prophecy then is a very, very important gift that God has given to his people in the church. In fact, here's what it says in the book of Proverbs, that the prophetic gift of prophecy representing the eyes, and it says where there is no what? Vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So notice it says where there is no vision, the people perish. But who gave visions? Well, it, it was God. Now, in the beginning of the scriptures, it introduces, introduces us, pardon me, into the different people who had what is called the gift of prophecy, or they were called prophets. God gave them visions and dreams, counsels to guide God's children in the pathway toward heaven. Uh, in the book of Genesis, for example, we find it mentioning a particular person who was a prophet. Now, Abraham was not the first prophet, but it's the first time that the word prophet is applied to a person in the scriptures. We know that Noah was a prophet, but it doesn't call him or use the term prophet for him. We know that Enoch was a prophet, according to the book of Jude. It says the seven from Adam, Again, but it doesn't use the word prophet. But with Abraham, it's the first time that I have found that it uses the word prophet or the title prophet. Notice what it says in Genesis 20 and verse 7. Now, therefore, restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet. And he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Abraham was a very important man for God, and God then called them a prophet. Now, what's interesting about prophets is this, that normally speaking, God gives counsel that is to be applied in the future. So if God, through a prophet, speaks to you, normally it's counsel that would help you to know how to relate to the future. However, oftentimes God gave specific time prophecies to prophets, and one particular prophet that's given a time prophecy, the first one that's mentioned in the scriptures again is Father Abraham. I want you to notice what it says in Genesis 15 and verse 13. And he said unto Abram, know of a certain of a surety or certainty that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. Notice then that God said to Abraham that his posterity, his children, those who had come from him along the line, would finally end up being in Egypt, serving as slaves for how long? 400 years. So, you have to then ask the question, when does this prophecy begin? Well, obviously, it begins when God told Abraham. So, from that time on, when God declared that particular prophecy, the clock of prophecy began to start ticking. So, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob then has the 12 sons, and eventually, uh, the 12 sons get rid of one son, and he ends up in Egypt, and he becomes the second ruler of Egypt. And after Joseph dies, a pharaoh comes up that knows not Joseph and begins to enslave the people of God. So this is a, a period of time of 400 years. Now, since God gave a time prophecy, this means then that the prophecy has to be fulfilled. So the time is ticking and ticking and ticking until finally the 400 years is about to be accomplished. So what does God, God do then? Well, what God does is something interesting. He then raises a prophet to bring the attention to the fulfillment of that prophecy that another prophet had given. In other words, Abraham had given the prophecy of 400 years, 
And now that it's going to be fulfilled, God raises a prophet. Who is that prophet? Israel's in Egyptian bondage for 400 years. And finally, God raised up a little boy named Moses. And that Moses happens to be a man that brings attention and the fulfillment of the prophecy given by Abraham. Let me show you the verse of scripture that supports that. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 13. Notice it says, and by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt and by a prophet was he preserved. So God gave a prophetic time period. The clock begins to tick. And finally, at the end of 400 years, God raises up a prophet to bring the fulfillment of that time prophecy that God had given. That's amazing. What do you say? Obviously, this is divine because there's no human being on earth that of themselves are able to foretell what's going to happen 400 years down the road. Now, what's amazing about this is that while God raises up prophets, there are specific times when God gives time prophecy. And he does the same thing again so that God, through his word, is giving counsel through prophets. So we can trace the gift of prophecy from Adam. And as I said, Enoch was the first prophet. Then you have Noah. And then after Noah, of course, you have Father Abraham. And God has been given verbal communication through these prophets along the way, his counsels. However, when it comes to uh, later on in, in time, God raises up several prophets. Israel is in trouble. And Israel has been delivered from the Egyptian bondage, had been set up in the land of Israel. They become a great nation, but they turn their backs on the God of heaven. And prophet after prophet begin to warn them, begin to warn them. And finally, one prophet gives a time prophecy. That prophet is Jeremiah. So in the book of Jeremiah 25, and verse 12, notice what it says. It shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans and will make it a perpetual desolation. So God says then through the prophet Jeremiah, that a time prophecy is given until Babylon actually uh, is defeated and Babylon then goes out from history or becomes history. So the time prophecy given, 70 years, the clock begins to tick in Abraham's time, and now what will happen? Well, if what God says through the prophet is true, then what happens is that that particular prophecy is fulfilled concerning Babylon and the Chaldeans. So when it is about to be fulfilled, guess what? God does the same thing again. He raises up another prophet. Who is that prophet? Well, it's a prophet, Daniel. I want you to notice something interesting. That Daniel is praying, agonizing, because Daniel is in bondage there with the rest of the people. And Daniel prays to God about this particular circumstances and situations and recognizes that they're there because of their own sins. And as he's praying, he's also beginning to study the writings of, guess who? Jeremiah. Why? Because he knew that Jeremiah had been given a prophecy, a time prophecy, that would uh, show how long this bondage would take place on the Babylon. Notice then, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Daniel then senses that this particular prophecy has a specific time period and uh, that it is about to come to its fulfillment. 
And so it is true in the days of Babylon, when Daniel is yet alive as a prophet, it turns out that the prophecy gets fulfilled. Uh, the Medes and the Persians actually take over the Babylonian Empire and the Babylonian Empire passes on into history. So the 70 years then are accomplished. Now what's amazing about this is that the, the prophet Daniel then is given a, yet another time prophecy. So Abraham, then you have Jeremiah, then you have now another time prophecy in Daniel. So what is Daniel given? Well, if you look at the gift of prophecy through the ages, you will see then that from uh, the beginning when man had a perfect face-to-face -face communion with God, and because of sin, God could no longer do the face-to-face -face communion, God begins to speak through prophets. So you have Noah, and then you have finally uh, Moses, and God gives to the prophet Moses the Bible, what we call the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. So God then shifts from verbal communication to written communication. And the councils continue to come. However, when you get finally to the time of Daniel, you have many other prophets. You have uh, Isaiah, you have Jeremiah, you have Ezekiel. Then you have a, a, a good group of prophets in the Old Testament called the minor prophets, such as Hosea and Jonah and Zechariah, etc. Finally, it ends up with the book of Malachi. But then God, to Daniel, gives this time prophecy. And uh, the time prophecy is supposed to begin at a specific time period. Notice the pro time prophecy. Notice what it says. He said unto me, for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, obviously, there was no sanctuary in the days of the captivity. Jerusalem was in ruin, as we just read. There would be 70 years of desolation. And so God then tells to Daniel, Daniel, listen, 2,300 years and the sanctuary will be cleansed. There's no sanctuary, so what is God really speaking about to Daniel? Well, there's some other things that are included in that prophecy. In chapter 9, God continues to reveal that a portion of the 2,300 days uh, is something called 70 weeks, which are determined, are cut off for the people. So out of the 2,300 days, 70 weeks are specifically applicable to Israel as a nation, as a people. Now, the question is, when will those 70 weeks begin? Since uh, Daniel is living in the time of the Babylonians and the prophecy is given during that time, uh, it says that the prophecy will actually start counting when Jerusalem begins to be revealed and the command to restore Jerusalem and the ruins is given. Well, that command is given in 457 B.C., as you can see in the, ch in the chart. So God then gives a time prophecy of 70 weeks that point to the Messiah and 2,300 days or years that point to the cleansing of the sanctuary. So we must first start with the first part of this prophetic time period of 70 weeks. Now, in Jewish uh, time, a um, year had 360 days. So if you actually want to figure out what 70 weeks is, you multiply seven days in a week, in a week times uh, the 70, and you get 490 years. So the prophecy says that from the time that the commands are going forth to rebuild and restore Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be so many weeks, 69 weeks. Then it says the last week, in the midst of the week, the Messiah will be cut off. So this is a very, very important time prophecy because through all the years, since the time of the fall of Adam all the way to the time of Christ, man was looking for, mankind was hoping for the Messiah, the Deliverer to come. However, the time continues to tick and tick and tick. But if you understood time prophecy, you would know that it would take a certain amount of time. 
So prophets who understood what God was talking about knew about the time when the prophecy was to be fulfilled. So you have 70 weeks, 69 out to the Messiah, which means then that Jesus would begin his ministry after 69 weeks. So what did actually happen? Again, God raises up a prophet to bring attention to the fulfillment of that prophecy. Who was a prophet who would bring attention to the fulfillment of the Messiah's presence? Well, it was John. In Matthew 3, chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, John says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Then he also says, uh, concerning John, for I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. In other words, John the Baptist is called a prophet. And John the Baptist says to all the people that heard him and to the publicans that justified God who were baptized by him, he said to the people, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the prophecy that had been predicted that the Messiah would come was being fulfilled. God has raised up a prophet to bring attention to that fulfillment of prophecy. It's interesting that when the Magi's or the men from the East came looking for the Messiah, they knew that it was about the time. And when Herod asked, the Pharisees were able to say that he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So they had an idea about the time. However, unfortunately, they were so wrapped up in their own ideas that they missed the opportunity that God gave them to welcome the Messiah to planet Earth. However, the scripture says that the local people or the common people received John as a prophet. The Pharisees did not. So the Bible says, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. When John the Baptist was raised up as a prophet and he gave counsel to the people and he admonished them to be baptized and put away their sins, those who listened and, and heeded the counsel found salvation. Those who didn't believe didn't feel the need to be baptized and washed, did not follow the counsel. Consequently, the scripture says that they rejected, not John, but rejected the counsel of God in not being baptized. Now, what's amazing about all that is that the scripture also points to the reality that the remaining of the time prophecy of 2300 days still needs to be considered. So God gives a prophecy through Daniel, and the fulfillment is brought attention to by John the Baptist, another prophet. Now, did God end with prophecy, time prophecy? No. God gave more time prophecies. And in this particular time, the prophecy that was supposed to go for 2,300 years needs to still be considered. What did that mean? Well, if you take the 1,200, pardon me, the 2,300 year prophecy, and you actually started from 457 BC, it actually goes all the way up to 1844. Now, what's amazing about this is this. God said the sanctuary would be cleansed to Daniel. However, in 1844, there was no sanctuary to be cleansed on earth. That particular sanctuary had been destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. But yet here's a prophecy that points to hundreds and hundreds of years in the future. What's amazing is this, that God always either did some event of some magnitude to show that the prophecy was fulfilled or raised up a prophet to show that the prophecy was fulfilled. So what was happening in 1844, what sanctuary? Well, it turns out that according to the Bible, the prophecy of the cleansing of the sanctuary had to do with the, with the work of Christ 
doing military work up in heaven and finally accomplishing the last, last cleansing of God's people, which would end with the closing of the sanctuary in heaven. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says that we're speaking about not an earthly sanctuary, but an heavenly one, and not an earthly priesthood, but a heavenly priesthood. Now, what's in interesting is this, that in 18... Uh, 44, or before 1844, actually, 1833, there was a great spiritual awakening that took place in America. Many people began to study the Bible and began to feel a sense of urgency that Christ was about to come. And there was a group of people called Adventists. The word Adventist simply means believers in the second coming. In those days, that term was a term not well uh, accepted because it was a derogatory term against people who had lost their minds, supposedly, that the end of the world was coming and that Jesus would come. But the Bible had predicted that Jesus would come, and the more you say to the Bible, the more you know that Jesus promises that it will come. So these people began to believe in the coming of Christ, so then they were given the, 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 uh, the, that title, Adventist. However, they believed then that the sanctuary cleansing would be the end of the world, so that the, the, the sanctuary was this world. But that's not what the Bible was pointing to. It was pointing to something of greater magnitude than the destruction of the earth. It had to point to the work of Christ and his mediatory work for earthlings. And then finally, the sins that had been collected throughout the, the millenniums would be cleansed, and that would be done in heaven. So, because of the confusion, people began to prepare for something called the end of the world. People began to give up their homes, their jobs, their lands, etc. And they believed that in 1844, Jesus would come. Sad to say, Jesus did not come in 1844. And those people who had accepted the teachings were just devastated. They thought that surely uh, their calculations were, had to be correct. But they were correct about the time. They were incorrect about what was supposed to happen. And therefore, God had to raise up, what do you guess, another prophet. And so in 1844, there was another prophet that was raised to bring attention to the fulfillment of a time prophecy that God had given through the prophet Daniel. Well, God raises a prophet to bring attention to the fulfillment of the prophecy. You can see his consistency from Abraham through Jeremiah, through Daniel, and then through the book of Revelation, there are several prophecies, time prophecies. But we're dealing with the longest time prophecy given, and that was in Daniel 8.14. And it would end in 18.44. So, God raises another prophet. And that particular prophet, then, was uh, one who would bring attention to the truth of what was taking place. Now, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, God has a picture of a woman who stands on the moon and has a crown of 12 stars and is clad with the sun, the brightness of the sun. That was the, a symbolic presentation of God's church. It started in purity, foundation upon the Old Testament, and clad with the righteousness of Christ, as it says in Malachi, that he is a son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Well, the scripture says that that particular woman was going to a hiding for 1260 days or years, but that the dragon would be wroth with that woman and went to make war with the remaining of the truth, those who were the gospel carriers, the truth carriers in the last days. And it says then, that this particular group of people were those who kept the commandments of God 
and have the testimony of Jesus, Christ. Now, it's interesting. Notice it uses two identifying marks here, commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is this testimony of Jesus Christ? In the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 19, pardon me, and verse 10, God gives us an insight as to what this is, this testimony. Notice what it says. John, of course, writing as an angel speaking to him. John finally falls at, at it, the feet of the angel. But the angel said, see that you do not this, or see that you do not that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. There's the same wording, the testimony of Jesus. Now notice it says, the, the next part, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now what's wonderful about this is that it brings out that this which you have in your hands is actually called the gift of prophecy. In other words, God through prophets wrote down his counsel for his people. And these counsels that have been written down have been collected together and today they're called the Bible. This is the gift of prophecy. God has spoken through prophet after prophet after prophet, guiding his people, comforting his people, sometimes rebuking his people, doing everything possible to reveal the hope that people could have in the future coming Christ. All of these things were written for the purpose of bringing people to a perfect man, as we read in the first uh, verse in Ephesians. Now, the gift of prophecy then is something that we should consider. Notice then that the testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophecy, or the gift of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. In other words, uh, the entire Bible is the testimony of Jesus. That's why Jesus said, search your scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So the entire Bible is the testimony of Jesus. Now that's wonderful, what do you say? Now, let's consider this. In the Bible, we read about men prophets. Uh, in fact, the scripture says that men were the ones that wrote the Bible. But there are also women that are called prophets. They're not included in the list of those who wrote the Bible, but they're included in the list of those who were called prophetesses. Now, can God use a woman? And the answer is yes. Here's a list of Old Testament prophets or prophetesses and New Testament prophetesses. Notice something interesting and important here. The first one is mentioned as a prophetess is Miriam, the sister of Moses. The second one is Deborah or Deborah, as some people call her today. And the next one is Huldah. So there are three women in the Old Testament that are considered to be prophets. And I should tell you this also, that in the book of Nehemiah, there's also a woman prophetess who's a false prophetess. So there were true women prophetess and there were false women prophetess, just like there were true men prophets and they were false men prophets. And so you had both the true and the false. God using the true and the enemy using the false to give missignals and misguidance to the people of God. But I want you to notice what's important here is that there are both men and women who God has used to give counsel to man. Um, so in the last days in 1844 then, God would raise a prophet. And uh, God did raise a prophet, but it was a prophetess rather than a prophet. In other words, God can use females just as he can use males when it comes to the gift of prophecy. So we discover then, studying back into history, that one of the persons that 
God used in the movement in 1844 to bring attention to what was actually taking place, the reality that there was a heavenly sanctuary, was a woman called Ellen G. White. Now, Ellen G. White uh, was just a young lady that God selected to give revelations to, to help the men in those days who believed ardently that Jesus had to come in 1844, and there was a great disappointment because he did not come. Now they were beside themselves. What did it actually mean? And that's when God gave through Mrs. White an understanding. And so the uh, understanding was that God would raise up uh, the concept that had been through the Old Testament sacrifices that finally Jesus, after he died, would go to heaven and begin the work of being the high priest and doing the work of the high priest until, just like the old time sanctuary, the time came for the sanctuary to be cleansed. And so, in essence, God revealed that we're living in the judgment hour of earth's history. Just like the old time sanctuary, when the day of atonement came, it was a day of judgment. So, in 1844 and on, we are then in the uh, process of what is called the judgment time. Notice what it says in Revelation 14, verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So a loud cry was to be given that we are in the, the time of judgment. Now, what's amazing about uh, this little lady, Mrs. White, is that she didn't have much education. I think she only had about a fourth grade education. And because she was injured when she was a young girl, uh, a fellow student throw, threw a rock and almost killed her. And so she had to stop studying. However, uh, she longed for Jesus to come. And she was one of those uh, ardent believers that it was true that you have to trust in the Bible. But when the, the, the great disappointment came, God then used that little lady to reveal the reality of what had happened. But God did not stop with just that revelation. God began to reveal to Ellen White other things. For example, uh, when Ellen White was doing her ministry, uh, God revealed many health counsels to her. Uh, in these particular days, for example, when she wrote this particular statement in the book, Ministry of Healing, that she authored, she wrote, tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. She wrote this at a time when medical professionals, doctors, uh, were actually administering a, an unusual treatment for people who had tuberculosis. Uh, they were encouraging them to smoke cigarettes. And by smoking, that, that would cure or help with their tuberculosis. Uh, the reality is that that did not help people with tuberculosis. It killed more people than it, and, and it never healed anybody. But that's what the medical profession was actually recommending. And when, when the medical profession were recommending that, God revealed to her that cigarette smoking was a malignant poison. And that's an interesting statement because in those days, not much was known about cancer. Today, no question that tobacco smoking brings, causes cancer. And it is a malignant poison. So she was ahead of her time a lady without education. How did she know that? Well, obviously, the God of heaven revealed it to her. Here's a statement about nutrition. This is Dr. Clive McKay, professor of, nut of nu nutrition in Cornell University, uh, concerning what she wrote. He says, in spite of the fact that the works of Mrs. White were written long before the advent of modern scientific nutrition, no better overall guide is available today. That's interesting. Now, it's, there's an interesting story about uh, the health counsel that God gave her. There's a man 
who became very, very famous in the United States. His name was Jack LaLanne. Uh, Jack LaLanne and his mother attended a series of meetings like the meetings that we're holding, but they had a medical doctor giving health talks. And one particular night, the doctor was talking and noticed that this young boy was sickly. And so he invited him up in front and asked him the question, uh, how do you feel? I feel horrible, kid says. Um, what do you eat for breakfast? A pie and ice cream. What do you eat for lunch? Ice cream and cake. What do you eat for supper? Candy. And so the doctor said, do you want to uh, remain sick as you are? No, the boy said. So then the doctor prescribed to him the counsel that he was acquainted with from Ellen White about eating plant-based foods and doing away with the sweets and uh, eating wholesome foods and exercising. Well, Jack LaLanne then did that. He followed the counsels and guess what happened? He became Mr. Universe. And when I was a young lad watching television, Jack LaLanne was always on television doing exercises for women in those days. And so uh, he became uh, quite well known. In fact, one time he, uh, at the age, I think about 78 or 80 years old, uh, he demonstrated how strong he was by swimming across the uh, uh, San Francisco Bay and pulling, uh, I think about 70 ro rowboats with his hand uh, in handcuffs. So he swam and pulled 70 boats with people on the boat all the way across the channel to demonstrate how strong he was. I remember one time not too long ago that uh, 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 the uh, governor of California, Schwarzenegger, who used to be Mr. Universe also, challenged Jack LaLanne to a push-up competition. And so they went and started it. Jack LaLanne did over a thousand push-ups. Uh, Schwarzenegger gave up very quickly. He couldn't keep up with Jack LaLanne. He finally just simply said, that man is an animal. Well, he wasn't an animal. He was a man who knew the health counsel that Ellen White had brought. And as a result, the man became very well popular. Uh, in Australia today, about 90 plus percent of the breakfast cereals are sold by a company that was started by, guess who? The councils of Mrs. White. It's called Sanitarium. And uh, Sanitarium is benefited by all that, that they eat. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, I, I tell people that, they, that uh, they've had Adventism in their homes all this time. They say, well, we never heard of Adventist. Well, that's because you don't realize that the food that you eat actually comes from the inventions of Adventists that came from the councils of Ellen White. What are you talking about? Do you eat callous cornflakes? Do you eat post cornflakes, uh, uh, post cereals? Yes. Well, Kellogg was an Adventist doctor that was receiving counsel from Mrs. White. And they established the Battle Creek Sanitarium from which the, the cereals have come uh, down the line. And so most people don't realize that this lady's counsel had been around for a while and they've been benefited by her counsels because I think in every household today, most households in America, at least in Australia, eat breakfast cereals that came from the counsels that God gave through Dr. Kellogg. And by the way, Post happened to be a patient of Dr. Kellogg's who went to get healing by him. And when he saw the benefits of the foods that he was getting, he decided to start his own cereal company. And so there you have it. Now, uh, notice then it says, Mrs. White, this is Paul Harvey. Many of you uh, may not have heard of Paul Harvey, but he was a very, very well-known news commentator. He always had a show every day on, on the radio. And he would always end with, uh, Paul Harvey, good day. Well, anyway, Paul Harvey uh, began to read the writings of Helen White. And uh, he wrote the following. Mrs. White, Ellen White, wrote with such profound understanding on the subject of nutrition that all but two of the many principles she espoused have been scientifically established. Amazing, what do you say? So, we know then that God can use women. We know that God used Ellen White. 
Now, what I want you to understand is this. Some people say, well, you believe in Ellen White. And I say to people, I don't believe in Ellen White. Why? You don't believe in Ellen White? No. I don't believe in Paul. I don't believe in Peter. I believe in the counsels that God gave through Ellen White, that God gave through Peter, and that God gave through Paul, or Jeremiah, or Isaiah. In other words, God can speak through men as he can speak through ladies. What do you say? And so God did speak through them. Now, obviously, Jesus warned us about false prophets, and therefore, we need to be alerted to the reality that there are false prophets. One time I had a cousin who just finished theology, and he went to New York, to New York, couldn't find a job. So I said, well, come and stay with us until you find a job. So what's interesting is he came and stayed with us, and he went to do what is called canvassing or selling religious books. He came back excited one day, and he said, I found a modern-day prophet. I said, you did? Yes, he said. I said, how do you know he's a prophet? Well, when I came and knocked on his door, he said, you are Joe Melendez. And he said, how do you know my name? Uh, I, 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 uh, God gave me your name when you came to the door. Come on in. So Joe said he was just, just amazed that this fellow knew his name and had never met him before. So they went inside to, his, to the house, and the man sat down, took up a cigarette, began to smoke, and began to tell my cousin Joe all about his, his uh, prophetic gifts. Well, when Joe told me he, that the man got up and started smoking, that immediately disqualified the man because the prophets do not defile their soul temple, which is your body. So I said to him, we need to study the test of a true prophet. And so here you have it. A true prophet directs attention to who or to what? To the scriptures, Luke 24, verse 27. In harmony with the law and the testimony. If a man or woman says that they're prophets and are not living in harmony with the law of God, those are the Ten Commandments, then you can rest assured that that person is not a prophet of God. Number three. They must exalt Christ because Christ is the author of the scriptures through the Spirit of God. Number four, must bear good fruit. Cannot be called a prophet of God and bear bad fruit. Number five, when prophets are under possession of the Spirit of God, oftentimes they can't breathe and uh, when they're in vision. In other words, when Mrs. White one time was in vision, uh, the, they took a candle and passed it in front of her mouth to see if there's any breath. And there was no breath. The candle would not move. Like Daniel, who also did not breathe. The life must be above reproach as well. Now, notice in Numbers 12, 6, it's another identifying mark. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. However, the false prophets are plenty. And we must compare the person who claims to be a prophet with the word of God. Again, in Proverbs 29, verse 18, it says, Where there is no vision, the people what? Perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Notice the combination the law and the prophets. Now, I want to tell you this. I personally have been greatly blessed by the counsels that I've read in the scriptures. They have redirected my life and uh, have led me into understanding of those things which have passed as well as those things which are to come. I've also been greatly blessed by the counsels of Ellen G. White. There are many times when uh, I've been in, in perplexity about something and I have read either the Bible or I have turned to what is called the gift of prophecy and used it to help me to understand and find direction and guidance and comfort. Tonight, today, I want to recommend to you this gift that God considers to be a very important gift. Because it is through the gift of prophecy 
that we will be able to know why these plagues are coming, what is coming ahead, how to prepare for it, and how to be ready in heart and soul for the greatest prophetic uh, counsel that are given, and that is that Jesus will come. I want to see Jesus come. And I'm grateful that God has given us the gift of prophecy to guide us into all truth, to give us sound minds, to give us a perfect heart, and by the grace of God, to prepare us for the most glorious event that will take place, and that is Jesus soon coming. Do you want to be ready? Remember the gift of prophecy. The Bible says, quench not the spirit, despise not, prophesy. And finally, hear, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Israel. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe in his prophets, so shall ye prosper. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of prophecy. We are grateful that you have provided counsel to guide us in the way that we should go and live. Warnings that keep us from plunging ourselves into lifestyles that are destructive. We thank you that you have given us health counsels that enable us to live better lives, healthier lives. And as such, that you give us comfort in knowing that all the things that are happening all around us are in your holy word, which help us to realize, as Jesus says, when you see these things come to pass, then lift up your eyes and look up, for your redemption draweth nigh. Bless us as we accept your counsels. In Jesus' name, amen.